think that is it for our highlights. Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 6, 5 through 13, and Patty Damiani is reading. In honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Patty. Um, so we have, uh, over the course of the last year, been in a series in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, over the last several months, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were here in like maybe, uh, maybe November sometime, maybe October, um, we uh, entered into Matthew chapter 6. And I said something like, um, we're, this, is, this is a classic passage called the Lord's Prayer. We are coming back to it in January, and we're actually going to spend uh, multiple weeks considering uh, this, uh, what has become a legendary uh, prayer. And so that's what we're doing. Uh, for this Sunday and uh, six or seven Sundays after this, uh, we are going to be looking at the, sermon, uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, and considering these uh, historic words, these ancient words. Uh, depending on your background, uh, these may be very, very familiar to you. Um, some churches repeat this prayer every week. It is part of their liturgy, and every Sunday, every worship time that they gather, uh, they say the Lord's Prayer together. Uh, and there's good reason for it receiving that kind of attention. And so over these next few weeks, uh, my prayer certainly is that this will, um, that this will uh, sink into our bones, that, th that we will see the beauty of what Jesus uh, is inviting us into. And so from now until basically up until Holy Week, uh, we will be uh, in, in the Lord's Prayer. If you, you might know it by, mem by memory already, uh, but if you don't, uh, you will be shocked how easy it is to memorize uh, the Lord's Prayer. And seeing that we're going to be in it for quite a few weeks, uh, that would be a, a great use of your time to, to print it out or get it on your phone or whatever and, and, and memorize uh, these, these words that Jesus, uh, that Jesus gives to us. So some background. Uh, this is right in the middle of Jesus' famous sermon that is widely known as the Sermon on the Mount. And at the beginning of chapter 6, uh, Jesus says, chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says these words. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. Now, what's interesting about that phrase is that if you read chapter 5, which is the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, there is a lot of stuff in chapter 5 that is Jesus describing to us what a righteous life looks like. 
And he's actually calling us to get more serious about that, to actually go deeper in our evaluation and our consideration of what we think of when we even think about righteousness. But then in chapter 6, verse 1, right after telling us to get serious about it, the next thing he says is, beware of practicing your righteousness. And he says, beware of practicing your righteousness in front of others, in in front of other people. And then he goes on in chapter 6 to give a, a little trio of examples And what he points to is giving, praying, and fasting. And Jesus gives these three examples of ways in which these are good things to do. It is good to give. It's good to give to those in need. It is good to pray. It is good to fast. But he says, you've got to ask another question. You've got to ask a deeper question. Why? Why are you giving? Why are you praying? Why are you fasting? They are good things to do. But beware, our our, our hearts can get sideways. Our hearts can get a little twisted. Then you jump down to verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. And in my Bible, that's where the subtitle for the Lord's Prayer shows up, is right before verse 5. And in verses 5 through 8, Jesus gives some more warning. And this is the part that's specifically about praying. So in chapter 6, verse 1, he introduces this and then gives the trio Well, chapter 6, verse 5, he starts talking specifically about prayer. And this is what he says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus is looking at his followers, and he's teaching his followers. And what he's revealing is there are a lot of people that pray. There's a lot of people that pray. And here we are in the year 2024, and if you've looked at any of those surveys that have happened in recent years, it always shocks me how many people say that they pray. It always shocks me how many people say that they pray every day. Jesus lived in a culture where he looked around and he said, man, there's a lot of people praying. We could look around in our culture, and at least in regard to self-reporting, there's a lot of people that, that, are, that are praying. And so a lot of people out there praying. Jesus says, same situation in first century that we're facing here. Jesus is talking about religious people. If you think of the surveys that are done in our current moment, a lot of the people that are praying, at least some of them, are not praying to uh, any specific God. They might just be saying a prayer. It just is a generic way, almost like a mantra or something that they are sending upward. Or it could be that they are of a different religion and they are praying to some, uh, someone or some being uh, quite different than the being that is presented on the pages of the Bible. But Jesus is talking to religious people. He's talking about people who pray. But Jesus has the audacity to tell us that some of those prayers are improper. And if you think about our current cultural moment, nobody has the audacity to do that. Everybody wants to say, well, whatever works for you, however you want to do it, 
whatever you want to do, whoever you want to talk to, however you want to say it, you know, that, that, that's fine. But Jesus is actually instructing. Jesus has the audacity to say some of these prayers are, are improper. And he gives two categories. I'm not saying that there aren't more than two categories. But in Matthew chapter 6, he points to two. And he says, don't pray like the hypocrites and don't pray like the Gentiles. Now, some of your versions may say pagans instead of Gentiles. And so either word is, is fine, but don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the Gentiles. They are praying, but something is wrong with their prayers. Okay, That's what sets us up to consider these words in, verse, in, in Jesus' instruction. So what's the confusion? He says, don't pray like the hypocrites. And we see that in verses 5 and 6. Jesus is not denying that they are praying to God, but he is revealing that their motivation is wrong, that they're actually praying to God to impress others. They are praying to God, but they want to make a name for themselves. This is why Jesus calls them hypocrites. That's what a hypocrite does. A hypocrite says one thing, but does another. They are presenting themselves in one way where all of their language is aimed at God, but all of their intention is aimed at impressing other people. They want other people to see them and to praise them. Jesus says they love, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What does Jesus mean by that? He says, if that's, what you're, if, if that's why you're praying, if you're praying to be seen by others, then guess what? You, you can get that. that. That's available to you. If you want to pray to put on a show for other people, <clears throat> that's available to you. You're aiming way too low. You are aiming way too low. It would be better you know, to eliminate the temptation of trying to impress other people. Jesus says it'd be better to go in your closet and close the door and pray to God in, in secret. That would eliminate that temptation for those people who struggle with that. It'd be so much better for you. But if what you want is the praise of other people, if what you want is to impress other people, you, you can probably get it. So is this, is this why you pray? Is the, is the reason that you pray to impress the people around you? Do you pray at your community group to, to try to really show your community group how, how spiritual you are, how, how intimate you are with God? Do you pray in other settings? Do you pray in front of your family in a, in a way that tries to present yourself as super spiritual, as super holy? Are you praying for the praise of people? Who do you want to hear you? In other words, if you want to impress others, you're aiming too low, but you can get the praise of the, pe of, of the people by doing that. It, it can work. But Jesus says, you're missing the point. You're going to get that reward, but you are missing the better reward. So don't pray like the hypocrites. And then he says, don't pray like the Gentiles, or don't pray like the pagans. Now, if, if your version says pagan, there, there's a reason why that translation's in there. But sometimes when we hear the word pagan, we think of like not religious. <clears throat> but Jesus is actually talking about religious people. He's talking about people who are actively praying. And so he says, don't pray like this group prays. 
they are praying a lot. He says they are heaping up these phrases. They're praying a lot, but these phrases are empty. And then he says, but they're hoping that they'll be heard because of their many words. And so when Jesus looks at this second group, he says, they are just, they're, they're saying a ton. They are saying so much. They are heaping up phrases and they are hoping that if the pile gets big enough, that they will be heard, that they'll be heard by their many words. What's going on here? Well, they are praying to impress God. So if, if the first group is praying to impress others, th this group is praying to try to impress God. And, and Jesus is showing that the relationship between the prayer and the God that they're praying to matters. Jesus is saying that this group, the Gentiles, are treating God like it's a business relationship. They think they will be heard because of all of their effort, because of their performance, because of all of these words, these many words, all of this effort, all of this work. You see, they're treating it like a business relationship. Like, I do something for God, all of this prayer, all of this spiritual activity, all of this work, and then what? God does something for me. I do something for God, and God does something in return. That, that's the basis of how this second group is praying. God, you should hear me because of what I do and what I do for you and how much I do for you. Then you bless my, me. You bless my plans. You solve my problems. You give me what I ask for. You make my life easy. I do for you. Look at all these words. Look at all this activity. Now you do for me. That, that's the engagement that is happening in these prayers. See, the basis of a, of a business relationship, it's performance. You perform for me, I perform for you. It's a, it's a, it's a give and take. It's, it's like a contract where I have my part, you have your part. If I do mine, you better come through on yours. It, it's conditional. You can even say it's mechanical. It, it's like goods and services. Is this how you pray to God? Is this how you talk to God? Is this how your relationship with God works? And maybe your temptation here is to be critical of yourself and say yes, or to not be critical of yourself and say no way. But you know what? I, I think the best evaluation, you say, how would I ever know? W one of the best evaluations is, how do you respond when you don't get what you pray for? What, what, what runs through your mind when you pray and you don't get what you pray for? See, in the first example, Jesus says, man, if you want to pray to pray, impress other people, you can get that. Like, you'll, you'll, you'll get that. Um, now, in this second group, the question would be, okay, like, what, when you pray and you heap up all these words and you think you're going to be listened to for these many words and all of this effort and all of this performance and you don't get what you want, what races through your mind? You know, what, what could race through your mind is this sense of saying, you know, after all I've done for you, God, after all of this spiritual effort, after all of this work, I did all of that for you and you couldn't keep your end of the deal? You couldn't come through? This isn't even that big. This was a little one and you couldn't even do that. That would be a tell. 
That would be a tell that you're looking at and saying, I'm going to church. I'm serving in these, in these nonprofits. I'm, I'm even giving money. I, I'm, praying. I'm, I'm praying a lot. I'm reading my Bible. I haven't, I haven't messed up my Bible reading plan yet. And it's January 21st. Like I'm sticking with it. And you can't come through on this one simple prayer. That, that, that would be a tell that your relationship with God is more of a business relationship. But there's another option. And that is you pray and you don't get what you want. And this is what you say. <sighs> yeah, why, why, why would God do that? I've been screwing up. I didn't even start a Bible reading plan. I, 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 don't, I, mean, I don't want to tell anybody what I did on Friday night. I, I've, been, I've been screwing it all up. Of course, of course God's not going to do that. So this week, this week I'm doubling down. I'm going to start the Bible reading plan. And I'm going to start volunteering. And I'm going to start tithing. And I'm going, to, I'm going to start doing all these things. And then, next time, then God will be like, okay, Matt, you're trying again. I, I'll, I'll answer your prayer. You see, you see how this mentality can work? On one end, you're blaming God because you're saying, I kept my end, you should keep yours. But another option is, is you're saying, yeah, you're right, I haven't kept my end, so why would you keep yours? Is that how you pray? Why do you think God should hear you? See, Jesus is saying that both of these approaches to God are, are terrible misunderstandings of how to relate to God. The first group that he refers to as the hypocrites want the wrong person to hear them. The second group, the Gentiles, have the wrong basis for being heard. So if those approaches are wrong, then what does Jesus suggest? See, but both of these groups are ultimately focused on themselves. And Jesus wants to reorient them, and he wants to reorient us. He wants to turn our gaze from ourselves in this ever-shrinking vision of our own life, our own world, toward God and others. Now, let, let me show you how one author, uh, his name's John Smed, uh, he's a Canadian, he, he, this, is, this is how he lays it out, and we'll get to visit this throughout this series. But it, it might be helpful for us just as a, a, a comprehensive picture to, to, to look, and I, I don't know if, the, if that font is all big enough for you to see. Uh, but, but John Smed refers to this as our default prayers. It's a focus on ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to bless our plans. We want to relieve our struggles. We worry about our present needs. We quarrel, you know, quarrels and conflict. We don't want that. We're defeated when we have to face challenges. And it's this inward, curved-in view of the world to where our communication with God is all about ourselves. And so in that first group, it's trying to make other people think that, man, look at me. I'm, I'm doing so great. But in that second one, it's like saying to God, look at me. Aren't I doing great? Don't, don't I deserve this? And it's this curving in on ourselves. And what John Smed invites is when you consider the Lord's Prayer in contrast to this. Go ahead to the next slide. If you can read that, you know, at the very top, it says, Our Father in heaven, instead of a focus on self. Holy is your name, instead of making a name for myself. Your kingdom come, instead of my plans. Your will be done, instead of just relieving my struggles. Give us uh, daily bread instead of being worried about my daily needs. Forgive us as we forgive instead of trying to avoid all of our conflicts. Lead us and deliver us from temptation instead of being defeated by challenges. And so this vision that Jesus offers in the Lord's Prayer is this invitation to, to move out 
to actually reorient our, our, our center of gravity and no longer have the center of gravity be ourselves, but to actually have it um, be increasing our capacity for God and to expand our hearts towards others. That, that's what Jesus wants for us. And as he teaches this prayer, as he offers this prayer, we, we begin to realize that there's a beautiful way to be in the world, to move in the world, that Jesus is offering this prayer uh, as, a, as a way to reorient ourselves. You know, in Luke's uh, account, when Luke gives us the Lord's Prayer, he says it's in response to the disciples basically saying, would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us how to do this? We see what you do. We, you know, Jesus was praying all the time. And it's like the disciples are like, we, we don't have that kind of a heart. We, we don't have that kind of a desire. Would you teach us to pray? And Luke then records something very similar to what we get in Matthew chapter 6. That this is a, a, a way of being in the world. It's a way of reorienting our minds and our priorities, uh, how we think, what we think is supposed to happen, and how we interact with the God that we think we're praying to. So Jesus wants this prayer to increase our capacity for God and to expand our hearts towards others. But how do we invert our focus? I mean, look, that first prayer, the default prayer with self in the center, that is, I, I mean, I think that to call it the default prayer is the right thing. That's just the default mode of life. That, that's, the, that's the way I see everything, is me as the centerpiece. Me, you know, I'm the center of the universe, and everything orbits around me, and I'm going to make sure I get mine, and I'm the captain of my soul, and I'm going to make sure everybody doesn't, you know, nobody offends me, and nobody, nobody gets it one, one over me, and, you know, it's like, I, I got I to gotta protect myself. I got to take care of me. This is a very natural way of being in the world. So how do we invert that? Well, my hope is that over these weeks, that's exactly what we begin to see is that this prayer as a collective, this, this whole prayer, is Jesus inviting us into a better story. And I hope in the weeks ahead, we can dig around a little bit on the story that we're being offered in this culture and the story that Jesus is telling us is the better story. But today, I want to show how Jesus first fuels that, that better story. What, 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 where, does he, where does he want us to start what is the, the premise, or what's the basis for this, uh, this journey? Jesus says, it's a family matter. Why do you think Jesus starts with the phrase, our Father? Jesus is saying that a Christian is one who realizes that their relationship with God is not a business relationship, it's not based on performance, but it is a family relationship. In a business relationship, the basis is performance. You perform for me, I perform for you. But in a family, the basis is commitment. It's permanent, committed relationship. That's the nature of family relationships. And Jesus is telling us that Christians get to talk to their heavenly father. Now, I, I, I uh, am, am well aware that the use of father here. Can, can be a, a challenge for some of us. Because you, you might have a really complicated relationship with your father. Maybe you never knew your father. Or maybe you knew your father and you wish you didn't know your father. Or maybe you are estranged from your father right now. Or maybe your father is no longer living. There's all kinds of realities that could come into play when we talk about fathers. And we live in a culture where there's a lot of hurt 
in regard to the relationship with Father. But I want to invite you to consider the fact that maybe there's a way in which this actually helps us redeem the concept of Father. Is one of the reasons why you, you, there, there is such a hurt in regard to your father relationship is because you actually have somewhere inside of, of, of your construction this sense of what a good father actually is, of what a good father actually should have been, that, that part of the loss and part of the pain of that father relationship is you actually, you, you do have a sense of what it could have been. And Jesus is actually revealing to us that there is an ultimate father the one true father, an eternal father, a heavenly father that we were meant to be in relationship with. And so we, we, can, we can do this with all kinds of things in life, either by contrast or by similarity. We can actually begin to conceive what, what these, these spiritual realities are. So, so for example, um, you, you could be having uh, the, the worst time of your life. You could be going through incredible amounts of hardship. And you could say, man, th this is, is so terrible. I, I can't imagine, cannot wait for a renewed world where all sin and sorrow and suffering are wiped away. So by contrast, you're going through something very, 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 very difficult. And by contrast, you long for this day when it's all going to be made new. But you know, if you're at the best party or on the best vacation you've ever had, do you know what you can do in that moment too? By similarity, you can say, if this vacation is this good in a broken world where, where things are not right and this place is vandalized by sin, if this vacation is this good, how great is the eternal kingdom going to be? So by contrast or by similarity, and I would say we could apply that with fathers. Maybe you had a very complicated relationship with your dad. By contrast, this is my invitation to you, by contrast, would you be willing to consider how great this eternal heavenly father could be? And maybe you're sitting here and being like, man, I had the best dad I could imagine. Okay, how much greater is this eternal heavenly father? And so this invitation from Jesus is to say that our communion with God is a family matter, that this is a father-child relationship. Are you trying to impress others when you pray? Are you trying to impress God when you pray? What if instead you let God impress you? Let, let me show you what I mean. The, the story of the world, according to the Bible, tells us that God created a good world but in, in the account of the Bible, in just the third chapter in Genesis, we find out that sin enters the picture. Sin enters the story, and it distorts God, God's good world. It breaks it. It severs it, it. It stains everything. It harms every relationship. And the most significant consequence is that it severs the relationship between humanity and God. The Bible tells us that God and Adam and Eve and God, that they walked in the garden together, that there was that kind of intimacy and that kind of communication and that kind of union. But when sin shows up, sin separates. That's what death is. Death separates. 
And when sin showed up, sin brought death into the picture, and immediately Adam and Eve were separated from God. The rest of the Bible tells us that the separation didn't stop with just Adam and Eve. It spread to every human being, and every human being is separated from God. That, that is the condition in, of the world. That's the condition of humanity. And that's when we begin to realize that when Jesus starts talking about our father, that he's actually tapping into this doctrine of adoption. That, that Jesus is actually saying, yes, sin has severed that relationship, but the story's not over. It could actually be restored. You see, the message of the gospel is that God's good world was infected by sin and sin severed our relationship with God. We got separated from our eternal father. The Bible tells us that no matter what solutions we tried, no matter what was given, what resources were provided, no matter how hard they worked, no matter how much effort was made, humanity could not reunite themselves with God. That's the story of the Old Testament. The the, the people of Israel are given every resource. They're given kings and prophets and priests. They are given miracles. They are given the word of God spoken to them. They're given all the, the law. They're given all of these resources. And by the end of the Old Testament, they are a train wreck. They're in exile and they are a mess. And you look around and you say, none of it worked. It all failed. And then you turn to Matthew chapter one and you find out that there's this little baby who was born and his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And his name is Jesus which is this play off of the Hebrew word, which means that he's going to save, that he's the savior. And so there's this this promise that shows up in the first chapter of the New Testament after all of this desperation of the Old Testament that the story's not over. And what we realize is that with all of the effort of humanity, none of it was enough. And God himself took on human flesh and Jesus came into this world and lived the life that we should have lived and then died on the cross in our place for one reason so that we could be reunited to our Father, so that we could be adopted in, so that we could be brought back into the family that we had been severed from. And if that's not shocking enough, the Bible says that this all happened while we were still enemies with Jesus. That Jesus came to rescue humanity while humanity was at war with him. We were his enemies And he came and gave his life for his enemies. The the center ethic of the Christian faith is a guy who died for his enemies. And I'm one of those enemies. And you're one of those enemies. We were his enemy. And yet he gave his life to rescue us. And you want to know how one of the New Testament writers explains this? In 1 John chapter 3, this is what John writes. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? that we should be called children of God. And so we are. John is stunned by this. John is looking at the situation and he's like, do you understand what kind of love this is? Do you understand that Jesus came here to rescue us while we were his enemies? That this is not something that we earned This is not something that we deserve. This is not something that we lived such a good life that we impressed other people and we got voted in. This is not something that we lived such a good life and we impressed God and God said, oh man, look at Matt, I gotta go get him. No, it's the exact opposite of that. 
While I was running away from him, while humanity was enemies with God, he came to rescue us. This is the good news of the gospel. And John says, see what kind of love. That phrase, what kind, is actually indicating this sense of like, that's in another category. Like, if you're familiar with, um, you know, I don't even know, well, you know, some sort of uh, food, whatever. You, 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 you eat this meat and you say, what kind of meat is that? I've had every kind of meat. What kind of meat is that? This is like John saying, we've seen love, but we've not seen love like that. What kind of love is this that the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God? And so we are. John says that what Jesus did actually opens the door for you and I to be called children of God, for us to actually be able to look at the father that we lost and have him back, not by our works, but by Jesus' work on our behalf. See what kind of love this is? God initiated it. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. He just loves us because he loves us. It's a scandal. It's crazy. And when we pray and we live in a way where we think we somehow have to earn his love or earn his favor, we, we misunderstand. You know, there's this little illustration about uh, if, you know, if, you, if you had a, a, a child and, you know, you came home from work and I had, I had all girls, so we'll go with girls. So I come home from work and sit down in a chair and one of my daughters climbs up in my lap and she has colored me a picture and she gives it to me and she says, daddy, I drew this for you. And I say, oh, honey, that's, that's so beautiful. And she says, do you love me now? And I would say, oh, well, yes, well, honey, I love, I love you for sure, absolutely. So next day comes, and I come home from work, and I sit down in my chair, and my daughter comes over again, and she has another picture that she's colored for me, and she sits up on my lap, and she gives, I colored this for you. And I say, oh, that's beautiful, honey. And she says, do you love me now? How many days would that have to happen before you're finally like, okay, something's not understood here something's being missed. My love for you is not based on your ability to color a picture or on your willingness to spend the time to color the picture. That's not what the love here is based on. The love is just because he loves us. God initiates it. God, we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. He loves us just because he loves us. So if you're here today, it's a, this is an important question. How can God become your father? How can you have that kind of a relationship? Well, the message of the gospel is an absolute scandal because the message of the gospel is that, that sin has separated you from God, but Jesus came to deal with that very problem. You know, sin is the great common denominator. It's the great leveler. The Bible says that every person who's ever lived is in that condition, but Jesus actually came to solve that problem. So what makes you unique is not the fact that you're a sinner. That's true of every single person who's ever lived. The invitation is to actually realize that there's something that you can do with your sin. That if you will stop trying to fix that problem yourself, if you will stop trying to save yourself and instead trust Jesus to save you, all, all you need is need. The invitation is wide open and he will scoop you up into his arms. You will be adopted into the family and then you will say, what kind of love is this? I've seen love before, but not love like that. 
I don't earn, I don't deserve this. I haven't earned this. This, this, is, this is literally crazy. Now, you might be sitting there saying, you know, this sounds too easy. But see, if you think that sounds too easy, then that might be revealing that you have a business relationship with God. That you're looking at your relationship with God and being like, I haven't earned that yet. He shouldn't give me that because I, haven't, I don't deserve it. But what if the, what if the game is different? What, what if adoption is very similar to our adoption here? That adoption, it means that a parent legally adopts the child and says, now you're my child. I won't send you home if you misbehave. You're in the family whether you misbehave or not. You're here. You're mine. I love you. See, a Christian is somebody who knows they've been loved undeservedly. A Christian does not see a business transaction. They see a miracle. You know, a Christian looks at, and you you look at a Christian, you say, it's a miracle that I'm a Christian. You know, somebody who has a business transaction with God, they look at God, and there's no, you know, they look at salvation, and there's no awe. You say, are you a Christian? They're like, I I think I'm a Christian. But listen, if you ask a Christian if they're a Christian, they're going to be like, you're not going to believe this. You are not going to believe this, but yes, God, God has welcomed me into his family. It's crazy. I don't belong to be there. I don't deserve it. He just did it because he does it. He just loves me because he loves me. A Christian has awe that they are a Christian. A Christian is blown away that Jesus would do that. On what basis do you think you should be heard? Jesus says it's because you're talking to your father. That's why you should be heard. It, 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 you're, you don't want to pray to the wrong person, try to get to impress other people, and you don't want to try to impress God. Let God blow you away. Let God impress you with what he's done for you. Whatever it is that you think you're piling up, I'm telling you right now, it'll never be enough. It'll never be enough. And that's what this table puts in front of us. A, a Christian finds the love of God amazing, like off the charts, otherworldly. What kind of love is this? A Christian says, I can't believe that Jesus has restored me to my one true father. I can't believe that he'd give his life so that I could have life. I can't believe that he would be cast out so that I could be brought in. As we come to the table, we're reminded that this bread represents the body of Christ broken for you. And we're reminded that this, that this cup is the blood of Christ spilled for you. And the message of the gospel is, if Jesus did not do this, then there is no way for you to work your way back and be reconciled to the Father. There's no way for you to call your Father, Father like that. There's no way for you to have that intimacy in your relationship unless Jesus is the one who rescues you. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is in 1 Peter chapter 3, and it says that Jesus Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He is the one hope. And what he's done for us opens the door for us to actually be called the children of God. And if you've done that, so we are. If you're a Christian, man, we invite you to come take this, these elements and to receive from Jesus again. If you're not a Christian, man, we, instead of coming down here, we invite you to stay in your seat and receive Christ. There will be some prayers on the, on the screen behind me, and uh, we invite those just as some language to help you talk uh, with the God of heaven. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, this, this prayer.
And God, over these next weeks, we ask for your help, that it would sink into our bones, that it would give us new lenses to see the world, that it would change it from uh, it being a, a, a world that's absorbed or focused on ourselves, but instead a, a world that's expanding out, increasing our capacity for you and increasing our love for other people. But God, a recognition that what you've done for us is, is unspeakably good, and that fuels us to have a life that's outward-facing. But God, we recognize that this is rooted in us being reconciled to you, of us being adopted by you, of us being united with you through Christ. So we thank you for Jesus and what he has done in our place, on our behalf. In his name we pray, amen.